Well, it's a very great privilege to be with you uh, again this morning. Thank you so much for your kind and gracious invitation. Uh, we're going to look today, both this morning and this evening, at two uh, challenging passages from the book of Acts. Uh, the first one uh, that we're going to look at this morning is in chapter 19, and then this evening we're going to look further back in the book to chapter 11, just to pick up some uh, key issues around the authentic nature of true Christianity. Let's read Acts 19, the first 22 verses, and you'll immediately discover that this is, in fact, a challenging passage. Paul is in Ephesus, and here is what happened. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the, value, uh, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, where he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pray now that as we turn to your word, that the words I speak may point us through the written word to the living word, the Lord Jesus, and that through him and the power of his spirit, you will write your word upon our hearts today. In his name. Amen. No one's really sure what's true anymore or what's real. Can you trust what you see? Can you trust what you hear? There are fakes around everywhere. I was stung last year in Turkey, in Marmaris. I thought I was buying a mulberry bag for my work at what I thought was a pretty good price. It was still pretty expensive. Uh, and after about three months, um, I, I, the, the, the shoulder strap broke. And uh, my son said to me, but you didn't think it was a real mulberry, Dad, did you? That would cost you about one and a half thousand. So we have fake money, we have fake handbags, we have fake watches, we have fake bodies, we have fake news, of course. And the Bible knows that fakes are everywhere. And this passage in Scripture that we've read this morning, this difficult passage, underneath all the superficiality and some of the challenging texts that we'll look at in a minute, the fundamental message of this passage is around authenticity and truth. This passage tells us what true belief looks like and what true behavior looks like in a New Testament Christian. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. New Testament Christians, what does true behavior look like? And what does true belief look like? Now, as I've already said twice, and that's me getting my excuses in early, these aren't easy verses. These are the preaching equivalent of a hospital pass in football. And the reason they're difficult is because these are narrative passages. The book of Acts is actually a difficult passage to preach, as indeed are all narrative passages. Because the narrative passages describe what happened in history. But they don't give us a running commentary as to what that means, theologically. So it tells us what happened in their time, but it doesn't always tell us what it means for all time. And that's an important distinction when you read scripture, of course. John Stott makes that distinction very clearly. He says that we must differentiate between what are known as descriptive passages, passages that tell us what happened, and didactic passages, passages that teach us what things mean. Because if we don't differentiate there, we may make the mistake of thinking that what happened to them then should happen to us now in exactly the same way. So Luke tells us what actually happened in eyewitness language, but he doesn't always tell us what that means in theological language, the way Paul's letters do. So in Acts, personal experiences are not always timeless templates. And so the first thing we see in this passage is true apostolic belief. I forgot that I had this... Um, I should have just gone without it, shouldn't I? Oh, there we go. True Christian belief. Excellent. True apostolic belief. 
And the first thing we notice about true Christian belief, uh, we discover in verse 4. It's belief in the name of the Lord Jesus. In these first seven verses, Luke gives us a record of Paul's encounter with a group of around seven men. Verse 7 is vague. It tells us there were around seven men about whom there is a great degree of, of, of discussion. A great amount of theological ink has been spilt over these 12 men. Were they believers? Were they unbelievers? Now, often we are very poor judges of the spiritual condition of others because we can only go on the basis of what we see. These guys appear to be disciples. They're described as disciples there uh, in, 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 in verse 1. But something prompted Paul to be curious and he challenged them. Now, that in itself is a challenge because it's not very politically correct in our culture today to challenge someone's belief is it it's more politically correct to assume that if anyone believes anything about anything even remotely christian then they must believe it properly and correctly and all is well with them so they sound christiany so therefore we make the assumption that they're probably Christian. But Paul isn't very politically correct at all, is he? And he asks two questions. First, he asks a question about faith in verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. Now, why does he ask the question? Paul asks the question because he knows that every true believer has received the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul knows, and we know from Paul's teaching sections later in the New Testament, that it is impossible to be a believer without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul's adamant about that in Romans 8 verse 9. That's why the teaching passages are important. Where he says in Romans 8 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So Paul's quite clear in his teaching passage that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. So we might best describe these individuals as nearly men. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. What they're actually saying is we have no knowledge of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Our faith is incomplete. So Paul's first question links the Holy Spirit with faith. And his second question links the Holy Spirit with baptism, do you notice? Paul is clear from his own conversion experience. He says, when he is converted, what do I do now? I believed, what do I do now? And Ananias tells him, get up and be baptized. So in verse 3, he asks these disciples, what baptism did you receive? And their answer is interesting. What John the Baptist said, we did. What John said, we did. But what did John say? Paul reminds them. This is what John said in Matthew 3. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Turn away from your sins and get into the water. That was John's message. Then Jesus arrives. What is John's response? He's the one, not me. 
He must increase, I must decrease. I'm here to point to him. Now, these guys had got as far as John. But they hadn't got as far as Jesus, do you see? John told them to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus, the Savior and Judge of all the earth. These guys, these disciples, need to get to Jesus. They need to get beyond John to Jesus. On hearing this, how did they respond? Well, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you see the power of the name here? They experienced the genuine joy of believing faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished. And Paul places his hands on them. And the Holy Spirit comes on them and they speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, this is massively significant. Remember, Luke is a meticulous historian. The structure of his material is remarkable. In chapter 1 and verse 8 of Acts, he is recorded right at the beginning in the prologue, the words of Jesus saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, listen, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then, through the rest of the book of Acts, Luke unpacks all of that. That's what he writes about. The spread of the gospel, firstly, in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And the passage that we read this morning ends with Paul's great desire to go to Rome, which, to the people of that day, was pretty much the ends of the earth. But not only does Luke tell us that that's how the gospel is going to spread, he also links each of these new initiatives, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, he links each of these phases of gospel development with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in his narrative. In chapter 2 at Pentecost, he covers Jerusalem and Judea. Peter begins his sermon exactly that way in Acts 2. Men of Judea and Jerusalem. So there's the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people in Judea and those living in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 8 and verse 17, we get to Philip in Samaria. So the gospel's moving now. Jerusalem, Judea, now into Samaria. Philip's there and the Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans. Then, in Acts chapter 10, the gospel begins to spread to the ends of the earth. And the Gentile believers experience the same experience of the Holy Spirit through Peter. And now here, in Acts chapter 19, we find what theologians call the diaspora. The spread Jewish believing community. Jewish people scattered across the Roman Empire to the ends of the earth. Coming to faith and receiving the Holy Spirit. And what Luke wants us to know is that these key moments are truly apostolic. So he constructs his material to to show us the theological significance and the strategic uniqueness of these four unrepeatable experiences. Do you see that? Well, 
What we can also say from Luke's evidence is that when people come to faith in Jesus, four things always happen all the time. Luke doesn't always record them in the same order, but they're always present in his writing. Repentance, faith in the Lord Jesus, baptism, and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. Those four things are always present when people come to faith in Jesus. Well, you may be sitting here this morning and you may be saying, well, that's all very interesting, David, and thank you for that on a warm, stuffy Sunday morning in Hamilton. I'm not a disciple of John the Baptist. How does that apply to me? Well, here are the underlying principles. You may be awake to the truth of who Jesus is. You may understand sin in your own life. You may know even that your sin not only makes you feel guilty, but brings with it God's judgment. You may even say things when you're asked in your honest moments. My life's a mess. My life's a shambles. I'm even prepared to admit I'm a sinner. What do I need to do to to deal with all of that? I know I'll do Christian activities. I'll use Christian language and Christian jargon. I'll do my best to hold it together on the outside. So no one will ever know what's really going on in here. Now that approach leads to one of two destinations. Either pride for managing to achieve all those miraculous things, or more likely, despair for not being able to do them well enough. And there are four types of people who come to church, and I'm pretty certain that, that all four types will be here this morning. Firstly, there are committed Christians. Committed Christians are people whose lives are marked by a constant turning from sin and a daily repentance. That's what that means to be a committed Christian. Now you'll notice, a committed Christian doesn't mean doing stuff in the church. Did you notice? A committed Christian in New Testament language is a life marked by a constant daily turning away from sin deliberately and daily repenting. So there'll be committed Christians here this morning. There may be non-Christians here this morning. People who have no interest in these things. You may be here for other reasons, out of politeness or social etiquette. You don't want to offend someone who's asked you, or maybe you're staying with someone and they're coming, so you came. Or maybe you've been brought up in a Christian home and you can't be bothered with all this stuff, but you can't break free just yet. You've not come to Christ, you haven't received the Holy Spirit, and you know it. You're a not yet Christian. Then there'll be a third category, I'm pretty certain. There'll be Christians who used to believe. Some of the people here in Paul's disciple group didn't last the pace in Ephesus. We know that. Because by the time John writes in Revelation, there are people in Ephesus who have fallen away from their first love. And the message from the Spirit to the church in Ephesus is return to where you began. Return to your first love. So there are people here in this story 
who didn't last the pace. And if that's you, and you're turning away from your first love, or you have already turned away from your first love, and you're here out of ritual, and your heart's as stone cold as a marble slab, you're called to repent again this morning. And then there are nearly Christians. You look like the real thing, but you've never really received the Holy Spirit. You've never had your life truly transformed by the gospel. You've got as far as trying to give up the bad stuff, but you don't have the power to do it. And the great thing this morning for all of us, no matter what category we might find ourselves in, the message is the same. Repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation and be filled with his Holy Spirit. And what will that look like? What does true Christian behavior then look like? Well, we find that in the second half of the section that we read this morning. The true Christian behavior is concerned with the way we use the name of the Lord Jesus. Did you notice that in the passage? All the apostles were marked by their commitment to preaching and teaching the gospel. Now, as we've come to expect, we notice from the narrative that Paul starts in the synagogue in verse 8. And notice what he debated in the synagogue. He debated the kingdom of God. That's really a shorthand way in the Bible of describing God's rule. Living under the rule and the authority of God himself. As the Old Testament comes to an end, the Jewish people are left looking for a coming king. So in Mark 1, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, and this is what Mark tells us. He proclaimed the good news of God, saying, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, people's reaction was interesting, wasn't it? Who does he think he is? The king? Well, Luke has already told us that that's exactly who he is. In, in chapter 1, verse 3 of, of the book of Acts, in the prologue that we've already referred to, Luke begins by saying this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and to teach. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. You see, the news we are given to take to our culture is far bigger and more significant than our own testimony about what Jesus means to us personally. Paul didn't reason on the basis of his experience here in the synagogue. Did you notice that? And the reason for that is the experience is relative, and we know that in our culture today. Probably like, like never before. You have your way of doing things, and I have mine. You've got your view, I've got my view. We're both right. We're all right. In fact, there is no wrong. But Paul speaks about not his own experience here. He speaks about a kingdom. 
with a king who rules and reigns not from a throne but from a cross. He is God's king, he is God's judge, and as soon as you cross that boundary in a conversation with someone today in our culture, you will hit opposition. You will get a kickback. And Paul got a kickback. People became obstinate. And they refused to believe, Luke tells us. Here's the greatest preacher that ever lived, probably one of them anyway. And yet people become obstinate towards him when he tells them the gospel. And they refuse to believe when he tells them the gospel. There was a hardening. Don't think that won't happen to you if you share the gospel. There will be a hardening. Now, the, 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 the Greek word that's used here for hardening is, is scleruno. It's the word we get sclerosis from. Hardening of the arteries. So their spiritual arteries became hard, do you see? And that's going to happen in our culture. That is going to happen in our culture. And there's always a right time to quit. And Paul quits. He moves on. When there's no genuine interest, no real engagement. But you'll only discover that when you try to engage. John Lennox is one of the most inspirational men in our Christian culture today. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege or opportunity to hear him speak or read any of his books, but if you haven't, you really must. You'll find him on YouTube, you'll find him on various Christian uh, websites, etc. But here is one of the greatest challenges, I think, that I've ever heard John Lennox give. Let me read it to you. You can tell how confident you are in the gospel by the number of times you've engaged in discussion or challenged a different worldview in the last month, if the number is zero, I suggest your confidence in the gospel isn't very high. I find that massively challenging. Because there is a temptation in our culture today, because of the perceived opposition and because of the perceived increase in secularization in our society, just to keep your mouth shut and keep your head down. But what confidence do we have in the gospel? Do we believe the gospel is truly transformative? If we believe the gospel, if we have confidence in the gospel, then we will engage, experience opposition, and potentially move on. But some will come to faith. Paul's confidence in the gospel, you see, is sky high. He knows he's going to get opposition. If you've read it earlier in Acts, he's been kicked out of just about everywhere. He's got beaten up. He's been stoned half to death. He's been thrown out of synagogues. He's been thrown out of cities. He's, he's bearing the marks in his body of, of testifying to the gospel. But his confidence in the gospel remains sky high, do you see? He's confident in the gospel. And so what does he do? He comes out of the synagogue and he looks for a way to continue. There's a lecture hall available from 11 to 4 when, when the Ephesians took the siesta. I don't know if you've ever been to Ephesus. When we were in Turkey, I went to Ephesus. It was 42 degrees at 11 in the morning. 
No wonder they took their siesta. But Paul didn't go to sleep in the 42 degree heat. He opens the lecture hall. He reasons, he debates, he exchanges questions and he answers these questions six days a week for two years. That's 3,120 hours, 130 days of continuous debating and lecturing in the heat of the day, 40 degrees. On top of his day job making tents to self-finance his ministry. Suddenly getting out to the prayer meeting during the week doesn't seem like such a big ask, does it? Paul's confidence in the gospel, you see, was sky high. The second apostolic behaviour and, and Christian behaviour was, uh, was miracles. Paul knew, uh, sorry, Luke knew that it's very important that he's able to establish Paul's apostolic credentials historically by linking them to specific places and people. Paul, you see, wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. And we know that particularly in Corinth, but elsewhere too in his ministry, his apostolic authority, and therefore the authority about his teaching in relation to the gospel, was coming under fierce attack. Aye, but Paul, you're, you're a fake apostle. You're not a real one. There were 12 real ones, not 13. So Luke goes out of his way to show that Paul does the same things as the rest of the 12 apostles did. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul tells us himself what they are. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. This is him defending his apostleship to the Corinthians, you see. I am a real apostle, he said. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So these uniquely chosen 12 apostles, 13 including Paul, proved the reality of their encounter with the risen Christ by doing the same things Jesus did. Now Luke shows us that Paul is able to authenticate his claim to be an apostle by doing the same things Jesus did, by doing remarkable miracles. Now that spoke powerfully to a city with a culture like Ephesus, for it was a centre for learning and practising the magical arts, where the occult and the demonic were widespread. We see that in this passage, and we'll look at it in a second. It's no surprise in passing then, that Ephesians, the letter Paul writes to this church, is the letter in which he gives his most comprehensive study of spiritual forces and powers and presents the Christian life as a battle. Now look how Luke documents the miracles in verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Luke wants the focus to be on God, not on Paul or the sweatbands or the aprons he wore when he was in his workshop. John Stott, I've already mentioned him earlier, says this. The wisest attitude to these handkerchief miracles, what are we to make of them, is neither that of the sceptics who declare them spurious, nor that of the mimics who try to copy them, like those American tele-evangelists with the green handkerchief things. But rather, our attitude ought to be that of Bible students who remember both that Paul regarded his miracles as part of his apostolic credential and that Jesus himself, 
Jesus himself condescended to the timorous faith of a poor woman by healing her when he touched when she touched the 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 lining of his garment. The third Christian behavior here that we see is exorcism. There's no record of a skiva. Sorry, I'm kind of lost here. Yeah, there we are. There's no record of a skiva in history. It says in the text that there in verse 14, he was a Jewish chief priest. There's no record of him historically. He seems to have been a self-styled fake chief priest with seven sons. Now, the way exorcisms worked was that you needed a name that was stronger than the name of the evil spirit inhabiting the individual. And people were always on the lookout for a stronger name. Now, the name of Jesus seemed very powerful. So you can imagine, here's a guy who's come around for his exorcism to the seven sons of Sceva. And the seven sons gather round. Thanks for coming. We're going to try a new name today. We're going to try the name of Jesus. Paul talks about Jesus a lot. So just you stand there. We'll gather around and, 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 and let's go. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And the evil spirit answers directly back. Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? You can't use that name. You're a fake. No exorcism. So the man goes crazy. I came here for an exorcism. Look what's happened. He attacks the seven of them like something out of a Matrix movie. And the seven sons of Sceva end up as what Alistair Begg, a name known to many here, particularly here, Alistair Begg calls uh, these individual seven sons of Sceva here the seven streakers of Sceva. That's where they end up, running down the street, terrified, naked. Look at the impact. You see? The name of Jesus. No one can play fast and loose with the name of the Lord Jesus. Look at the behavior of the believers. The fear of God fell on the people. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Do you see? This is about the power and dignity and honor of the name of Jesus. And look where that starts in the believing community. When the power of the name of Jesus grips a believing community, look at the impact. They build a 3.6 million pound bonfire. That's 50,000 days wages in today's money. A 3.6 million pound bonfire with all the rubbish from their past, all their scrolls, their magic books, all their stuff about their cult, all the baggage that they'd brought into their new Christian life that was still on the bookshelf back home, they brought it out and they burnt it all in public. This is what a believing community looks like. Many of those who believed, so these are believers, came and confessed their evil deeds. Believers with evil deeds. They need to be confessed. You see, they were hoarding stuff from their old life in their new life as Christians. It was a contradiction in terms.
So the question for us as we close this morning is this. For whom do you live your life? Do you have evil deeds in your life? So you're a Christian. Yeah, but what did you bring with you? What are you still carrying from your old life? You have a filthy mind. You have a filthy mouth. Do you think you can have Jesus as your king and be having an affair with that woman or man at work? Do you think you can take the Lord's Supper, as we're about to do now, with an unforgiving or a jealous spirit? Do you think that's okay? When the name of the Lord Jesus grips a congregation, as we pray his name will grip us now this morning, what happens is that the scrolls are burnt. The scrolls are burnt. Come and burn the scrolls this morning. How do you do that? Well, you come to the foot of the cross where the Lord Jesus became a burnt offering for you. You lay down the sin for which he was consumed. There's freedom in his name. There's no other name but the name of the Lord Jesus by which you can and must be saved. It's the most powerful name in the universe. If you're hoarding destructive things in your life this morning, a non-Christian relationship that isn't honouring God, an addiction to alcohol, online gambling, online porn, addiction to things, spending money you don't have, holding on to the sins of the past, the call this morning, as the name and the power of the name of the Lord Jesus grips a congregation, is come and lay it down. Come and lay it all down. At the foot of the cross, come and burn the scrolls. And look what will happen. What happened here? Well, we see it in verse 20, don't we? The word of God will spread widely and grow in power. Not just in your life, but in the life of your community. I see a near revival. That's the only way to see it. Come and burn the scrolls this morning. Amen.